Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I'm on the line with Kelly Revoir. Kelly is an engineering manager at Stripe working on machine learning infrastructure. Kelly, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat. We got in touch with you kind of occasioned by a talk you're giving at Strata, which is actually happening uh, as we speak. I'm not physically in SF for it this time, but uh, your talk, which is going to be later today, is on scaling model training from flexible training APIs to resource management with Kubernetes. And of course, machine learning infrastructure and AI platforms is a very popular topic here on the podcast. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to digging into the way Stripe is uh, platforming its machine learning uh, processes and operations. But before we do that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got started working in this space. Uh, yeah, sounds great. Maybe I'll say a little bit about what I do now and then kind of work backward from that. Awesome. Um, so right now I'm an engineering manager at Stripe and I work with our data infrastructure group, um, which is seven teams kind of at the lowest level, things like our production databases or things like Elasticsearch clusters, and then kind of working up through um, like batch and streaming platforms, uh, core like ETL data pipelines and libraries, and also machine learning infrastructure. I've been at Stripe for very close to six years now, um, from when the company was about 50 people, and have basically worked on a bunch of different things in um, sort of like risk data, uh, and machine learning, um, both as an engineer and engineering manager, and also um, initially more on kind of like the application side, and then over time moving over to the, the infrastructure side. Um, by training, I'm like a kind of research scientist person. Uh, so I studied physics and electrical engineering in school, um, did my PhD at Stanford working on nanophotonics, and then did a, a short postdoc at HP Labs. Is that uh, nanophotonics? Yeah, I think you had um, like Igat and Ozcan on recently who worked on optics, which is not too far away. So maybe that gives you a little bit of an idea. And then, yeah, I was at HP Labs for a year or so working on sort of similar things and also some 3D imaging. And um, I guess I like to call what I did, although I don't know that anyone else calls it that, um, sort of like full stack science where like (laughs) you have an idea and then you do some theory or modeling or simulation and then you use that to design a device. And then you actually go in the clean room and like make the device. And then you actually go in the optics lab and like, you know, shoot a bunch of lasers at your device and measure it. And then you sort of like process the data and compare it to your theory and simulation. And I always liked, I found like kind of the two ends the most. like sort of the magical moment where like, you know, the data that you collected like matches what you thought was going to happen from your modeling. Um, And I kind of decided that I wanted to do more of that and a little less of like fabrication or material science. And I was kind of sitting in Silicon Valley and started looking around and like Stripe was super exciting in terms of its mission, um, like having interesting data and just like having amazing people. Awesome. Awesome. Stripe sounds really interesting, but shooting lasers at stuff also sounds really, really cool. (laughs) Yeah. People get really excited when you tell them that. (laughs) So that was fun for a while. Maybe tell us a little bit about Stripe's kind of machine learning journey from an infrastructure perspective. Um, You know, how did it, uh, it sounds like you're 
doing a bunch of interesting things, both from a, a training perspective, from a data management perspective, inference. Um, but how did it evolve? Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting about um, machine learning at Stripe, like I think a lot of places you talk to machine learning kind of like started out as being for some some kind of like um, offline analytics, more like, you know, internal business questions, like maybe like you're trying to calculate long-term value of your users. And we do stuff like that now, but we actually started like our kind of core uses have always been very much on kind of the production side like our kind of most business critical and first machine le- machine learning use cases were things like um, scoring transactions in the charge flow to evaluate whether they're fraudulent or not. Um, mm-hmm. We're doing kind of like internal risk management of like, you know, making sure our users are, um, you know, selling things that we can support from our terms of service or that they're kind of like, you know, good users that we want to support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we started out from having kind of a lot of these more like, production requirements of it needs to be this fast and it needs to be this reliable. And I think our machine learning platform kind of like evolved from that side Okay. Um, where, you know, initially we had kind of like one machine learning team and then even just having a couple of applications, we started seeing like, oh, here are some commonalities, like everyone needs to be able to score models or, um, you know, even like having some notion of shared features could be really valuable across just a couple of applications. And then as we split our machine learning team, one piece of that became um, machine learning infrastructure, um, which we've developed since then. And, you know, it's really important for that team to work both with the teams doing the business applications, which now include a bunch of other things um, in our user-facing products like radar and billing, as well as internally. Um, And also, you know, it's important for the machine learning infrastructure to build on the rest of your data infrastructure and really the rest of all of your infrastructure. And we've worked really closely with like our orchestration team on, you know, as as you said in um, chatting about my talk, like getting training to run on Kubernetes. Yeah, that's maybe an interesting place to start. The um, you kind of alluded to the the interfaces between machine learning infrastructure as a team and you know data infrastructure, you know just infrastructure. Um, how do they how do they connect? You know maybe even organizationally, um, and how do they tend to work with enough, with one another? For example, you know in um, you know, training on Kubernetes, you know, where's the line between what the ML infrastructure team is doing uh, and, you know, what it's requiring of some, you know, broader technology infrastructure group? Yeah, I think the Kubernetes case is really interesting and it's one that's been super successful for us. Um, So I I guess maybe like a year or two ago, we initially focused on the kind of scoring, like real-time inference part of models, because that's the hardest. And we'd sort of left people on their own. It's like, well, you figure out how to train a model. And then, you know, if you manage to do that, we'll help you score it. Um, and we realized <laughs> that that wasn't like great, right? Um, so we started thinking, you know, what can we do? And at first we built some CLI tools to kind of like wrap the Python people were doing, but then we wanted to kind of do more. So eventually we built an API and then a big hassle had been the resource management. And we just kind of wanted to like abstract that all away. And as it happened at that time, our orchestration team had gotten like really interested in Kubernetes. And I think they wrote a blog post like maybe a year and a half ago. They had kind of just moved our first application to Kubernetes, which was some of our cron jobs that we use in our financial infrastructure. And so we ended up collaborating. This was kind of like a great next step um, of a second application they could work on. 
And, you know, we had some details we had to work out where we had to figure out, like, how do we package up all of our Python code into, you know, some Docker file we can deploy. And it was really useful to be able to work with them on that. Um, but I think we have found really good interfaces in working with them where, you know, we wrote a client for the Kubernetes API, but it's like um, anytime we need help or anytime there's management of the Kubernetes cluster, they take care of all of that. So it's kind of given us this flexibility where we can define different instance and resource types and swap them out really easily if we need CPUs or GPUs or we need to like expand the cluster. But we, as machine learning infrastructure, kind of like don't have to deal with managing Kubernetes or updating it. We have this amazing team of people who are like totally focused on that for Stripe. So your talk uh, at Strata was focused on this area. Um, what what was kind of the flow of your talk? What were the main points that you were uh, that you're planning to go through uh, with the audience there? Yeah, great question. So we we kind of think about this in two pieces, and you know maybe that's because that's how we actually did it. Um, so one piece was the resource management that I talked about with, you know, getting getting things to run on Kubernetes. That was actually kind of like the second piece for us. The first piece was um, figuring out sort of like how should the user interact with things and like where should we give them flexibility and where should we constrain things. Um, and so we ended up building what we call internally Railyard, which is like a model training API. Um, and it goes with, there's sort of two pieces. There's like what you put in the API request and then there's what we call a workflow. And the API request is a little bit more constrained. Like you have to say your metadata for who's training so we can track it. You have to tell us like where your data is, um, like how you're doing things like holdout, um, just kind of basic things that you'll always need. But then we have this workflow piece that um, people can write like kind of like whatever Python they want, as long as they define a train method in it that will hand us back like the fitted model. Um, and we definitely have found that like initially we were very focused on binary classifiers for things like fraud, um, but people have done things like word embeddings. We have people doing time series forecasting. Um, we're using like things like scikit-learn, XGBoost, FastText, PyTorch, Profit. Um, so this has worked pretty well in terms of like providing enough flexibility that people can do things that we actually didn't anticipate originally, but it's constrained enough that um, we can run it and sort of track what's going on and give them what they need and be able to automate the things we need to automate. Do you think of your users as more kind of the data science type of user or machine learning engineer type of user, or is there a mix of those two types of backgrounds? Yeah, it's a mix, which has been really interesting. And I think coming back <laughs> to what I said earlier, like because we initially focused on these kind of critical production use cases. We started out where the team's users were really pretty much all machine learning engineers and very highly skilled machine learning engineers, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know, people who are excellent programmers and you know they know stats and ML and they're kind of like the unicorns to hire. Um, and over time, we've been able to broaden that. And I think having things like you know this tooling has made that possible. Like in our user survey right after we first shipped. Um, even just the kind of like API workflow piece. And we were actually just like running it on some box as a sidecar process. We hadn't even done Kubernetes yet. But a lot of the feedback we got was like, oh, this new person started on my team. And I just like pointed them to the directory where the workflows are. And I like didn't have to think about how to split all these things out because like, you know, you just kind of pointed me in the right direction and I could point them in the right direction. So I think that having having these kind of like common ways of doing things has been a way to broaden our user set. And as our data science team which is more internally focused, has grown. Um, they've been able to kind of like start picking up increasingly 
large pieces of what we built for the ML engineers as well. And we've been like excited to see that and work with them. Uh, and so the interface then is, is kind of Python code and are, is the platform containerizing that code or is the user expected to do it or is it integrated into some kind of workflow like they check it in and then it becomes available you know to the platform via a, a, a check-in or CI/CD type of process yeah so um, we still have the experimental flow where people can like kind of try things out but when you're ready to productionize your workflow basically what you do is you get your code reviewed you merge it um, we use we ended up using Google Subpar library because it works really well with Bazel, which we use for a lot of our build tooling. What are the those two? Uh, uh, yeah, so Subpar is um, a Google library that helps us like package um, Python code into like a self-contained executable, both the source code and any dependencies. Like if you're running PyTorch and you need some CUDA stuff. Okay. Um, and it works kind of out of the box with Bazel, which is the open source version of um, Google's build system, which we have started to use at Stripe a few years ago and have expanded since. Um, it's really nice for like speed, reproducibility, and working with multiple languages. Um, so this is where our ML Info team kind of worked with our orchestration team to figure out the details here. Um, to be able to kind of like package up all this Python code and have it so that basically almost like a service deploy, you can kind of like have it turn into a Docker image that you can deploy um, to like Amazon's ECR. And then um, Kubernetes will kind of like know how to pull that down and be able to run it. So the ML engineer, the data scientist doesn't really have to think about any of that. It just kind of works as part of the, you know, you get your PR merged and you deploy something if you need to change the workflow. But earlier on in the process, when you're experimenting, the currency is a you know some Python code. What kind of tooling have you built up around experiment management and automatically tracking uh, various experiment parameters or hyperparameters, um, hyperparameter optimization, that kind of thing? Are you doing all that, or is that all on the the user to to do? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so one of the things that we added in our API for training is we found it was really useful to have this like custom params field, um, especially because we eventually people ended up and, you know, we have some shared services to support this, like sort of a retraining service that um, can automate your training requests. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that people from the beginning used the custom params for was hyperparameter optimi optimization. We are kind of working toward building that out as a first class thing. Like um, we now have like evaluation workflows that can be integrated with all of this as well. And that's kind of like the first step you need for hyperparameter optimization if you want to do it as a service. Mm -hmm. Like what are you optimizing if you don't right. know what <laughs> metrics people are looking at? Right. Um, so that's something we hope to do like over the next, you know, three to six months is to make that like a little bit more of first class support. And you mentioned this this uh, directory of workflows. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so um, one of the nice things is, you know, when you're writing your workflow, if you put it in the right place, then our um, our Scala service, uh, Railyard, will know where to find it. But one of the side benefits has also just been that there is one place where people's workflows are. Um, and so that, that's been kind of like a nice place for people to get started and see, like, you know, what models are other people using or, like, what pre-processing or kind of what other things are they doing or what um, what types of parameters, like estimator parameters, are they looking at changing um, to just kind of 
you know, have that be like a little bit more available to our users, our internal users. Mm -hmm. And the, the workflow element of this, is it, uh, is it graph based? Is it something like airflow? Um, how's that implemented? Yeah. So in this case, by workflow, all I mean is just like Python code that, you know, you give it like we're actually Railyard, our API passes to it, um, like what are your features or what are your labels? And then your Python code returns like here is the fitted pipeline or model and um, like usually something like the evaluation data set that we can pass back. Um, we have had so we've people have kind of built us and users like interesting things on top of having a training API. Okay. So some of our users built out um, actually the folks working on radar a fraud product built out like an auto retraining service that we've since kind of taken over and generalized mm -hmm. um, where they schedule like nightly retraining of all the tens and hundreds of models. Um, and, you know, that's integrated to be able to even like if the evaluation looks better, like potentially automatically deploy them. Uh, we do also have people who have put like training models via our service into like Airflow DAGs if they have, um, you know, some some slightly more complicated set of things that they want to run. Um, so we've definitely seen that as well. And you've mentioned Radar a couple of times. Is that a, a product at Stripe or an internal project? Of yeah, or? Radar is our um, like user facing fraud product. It, okay. Um, runs on all of our machine learning infrastructure and, you know, every charge that goes through Stripe within usually 100 milliseconds or so, we've kind of like done a bunch of real-time feature generation and evaluated um, like kind of all of the models that are appropriate. And um, in addition to sort of the machine learning piece, there's also a product piece for it where users can get um, more visibility into what our ML has done. They can kind of like write their own rules um, and like set block thresholds on them. And there's, there's sort of like a manual review functionality. So there are kind of some more product pieces that are complementary to the underlying machine learning. Just trying to complete the picture here. You've got these workflows, which are essentially Python. They expose a train entry point and you mentioned it's directory of workflows. Is that like a directory like on a server somewhere with just like .py files or is that, are they, do you require that they be versioned? Um, and are you kind of managing those versions? Yeah. So that, that's just like actually like in a code repo basically. So that's okay. like, you know, the workflows live together in code as part of kind of our training API. It's like when you submit, here's my training request, which has, you know, here's my data, here's my metadata, this is the workflow I want you to run. We give you back um, a job ID, which then you can check the status of, you can check the result. The result will have things in it, like what was the Git SHA. Um, and so that's like something that we can track as well. Got it. So you're submitting the job with the code itself as opposed to a Git SHA? Um, so I guess it depends a little bit which workflow you're running through. Like um, in the case where you're running on Kubernetes, you've merged your code to master. Um, and then we kind of package up all this code and um, deploy the Docker image. And then from there, you can kind of make requests to our service, mm -hmm. um, which will run the job on Kubernetes. So at that point, your code, it's, you know, whatever's on master for the workflow plus whatever you've put in the request. Uh, let's talk about where the, the data comes from for training and what kind of, uh, you know, platform support you're offering folks. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, 
kind of within the framework of like, what do you need for a um, like Railyard API request? We support two different types of data sources. Um, one is more for experimentation, which is like you can kind of tell us how to make the SQL to query the data warehouse. And that's kind of nice for experimentation, but not so nice for production. What pretty much everyone uses for production is um, the other data source we support, which is Parquet um, from S3. So it's like you tell us you know, where to find that and what your feature names are. And usually that's generated by um, our features framework that we call Semblance, which is basically um, like a DSL that helps, you know, gives you a lot of ways to write complex features, like think, have things like counters, be able to do things like joins, do a lot of transformations. And then, um, you know, the ML infrastructure team figures out like how to run that code in batch if you are doing training or um, like there's a way to run it in real time, basically in kind of like a Kafka consumer setup. Um, but you only have to write your code, feature code like once. Is it the user that's only writing a feature code once or are you going after kind of sharing features across the user base? To what extent are, are you seeing uh, shared features? Yeah, that, that's like a really excellent question. Um, yeah, so the, the user writes their code once and like also I think having a framework similar to the training workflows where people can see what other people have done has been really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um so we do have people who are like definitely kind of sharing features across applications. And there's there's a little bit of a trade-off. Like it's like a huge amount of leverage if you don't have to rewrite some complicated business logic. Um, you do have to manage a little bit of making sure that, um, you know, everything is versioned and that you're paying attention to like not deprecate something someone else is using and that you're not like just like changing a definition in place right. uh, that you are kind of like creating a new version every time you are changing something. Right, so right. there's a little bit more management there and hopefully over time we can improve our tooling around that. But I think it's, you know, even, even since before we had a feature framework, like being able to kind of share some of that stuff has been like hugely valuable for us. Is the features framework, is that a set of APIs or is that a kind of a runtime uh, yeah. thing like what what exactly is it yeah there's kind of two pieces so um which is basically sort of what you said like you know one is more <laughs> like the api uh-huh. of um like what are what are the things we you know let users express and one thing we've tried to do there is actually constrain that a little bit so we like you have to use events for everything and we don't really let you express notions of time so you kind of can't mess up that time machine of like what was the state of the features at some time in the past where you want to be training your model, we kind of like take care of that for you. Um, So that's kind of one piece. And then, you know, we kind of compile that into like an AST and then we use that to essentially write like a compiler to be able to run it on different backends. Um, And then we can kind of like, you know, write tests and try and check um, at the framework level that that things are going to be as close as possible to the same across those different backends. So backend could be, um, something for training where you're going to materialize like what was the value of the features at each point in time in the past that you want as inputs to training your model um, or another backend could be like I mentioned we have kind of this cock consumer based backend that we use like for example um, for radar to be able to like evaluate these features like as a charge is happening. Uh, and so to what extent do you find that limitation of everything being event based gets in the way of what folks want to do? 
Yeah, that, that's a really good question, too. Um, it's definitely ha- was originally a little bit of a paradigm shift for people. because They were like, oh, I just want to use this thing from the database, right? <laughs> um, but we found that actually it's worked out pretty well. And that especially when you have users who are ML engineers, like they do really understand the value of like why you want to have things be event-based and like the sort of gotchas that that helps prevent. Because um, I think everyone has their story about how you were just looking something up in the database, but then, you know, the value changed uh, and you didn't realize it. So it's kind of like you're leaking future information into your training data and then your model is not going to do as well as you thought it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I think moving to a more event-based world and, I mean, I think in general, Stripe has also kind of been doing more streaming work and um, more having like good support also as, as uh, at the infrastructure level with Kafka has been really helpful with that. And so does that mean that the models that they're building need to be aware of kind of this streaming paradigm during training uh, no. or do they get a static data set? To train yeah. Us. So basically, um, you can kind of use our features framework to just generate like Parquet and S3 that has materialized like all of the information you want of what was the value of each of the features that you want at all the points in time that you want. And then, you know, your input to the training API is like, please use this Parquet from S3. Uh, we could make it a little more seamless than that, but mm-hmm. that's worked pretty well. And Parquet is just like a serialized, like a file format. Yeah, it's pretty efficient. You know, I think it's used in a lot of kind of big data uses. Um, you can also do things like predicate pushdown, and we have like a way in the training API to kind of specify some filters there um, to just kind of like save save some effort. Uh, use a predicate pushdown. Yeah, so if you know you only need certain columns or something, like you know, you can you can load it a little bit more efficiently and not have to carry around a lot of extra data. Got it. Okay. The other interesting thing that you talked about in the context of the this event based framework is the whole um you know time machine is the way you said it kind of alluding to the the point in time correctness of uh you know a feature snapshot can you elaborate a little bit on um did you did you start there or did you evolve to that that seems to be in my conversations kind of uh I don't know, maybe like one of the the cutting edges or bleeding edges that people are trying to deal with as they scale up these um, these data management systems for features. Yeah, for this particular project, um, in this version, we started there. Stripe previously had kind of looked at something a little bit related a couple of years before. Um, and in a lot of ways, we kind of learned from that. So we ended up with something that was more more powerful and sort of solved some of these issues at the platform level. Um, we did, you know, at that point we had been running machine learning applications in production for a few years. So I think everyone has their horror stories, right? Of like all the things that can go wrong, um, uh, especially kind of at a correctness level. And like, everyone has their story about like re-implementing features in different languages, which we, we did for a while too, and kind of like all the things that can go wrong there. So, um, yeah, I think we we really tried to learn from both like what are all the things we'd seen go well or go wrong in individual applications mm-hmm. and then also from kind of like our previous attempts um, at some of this type of thing, like what what was good and, you know, what could still be better. And uh, out of curiosity, what do you use for data warehouse and are there multiple or is it is there just one? Um, we've used a combination of Redshift and Presto um, over the past couple of years. Um 
you know, they have a little bit of sort of like different abilities and strengths. Um, and those are, those are things that people like to use to experiment with machine learning. Although like, you know, we generally don't use them in our production flows because we kind of prefer the event-based model. And so is the event-based model parallel or orthogonal to, to Redshift or Presso is, or is it a front end to either of these two systems? Yeah, I guess we have we actually have a front end that we've built for Redshift and Presto, um, you know, separately from from machine learning. That's really nice and lets people like, um, you know, to the extent they have permissions to do so, like explore tables or put annotations on tables. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't integrated our. In general, I would say we could do some work on our UIs for for our ML stuff. We've definitely focused more on the backend and infra and API side. Although we do have some things like our auto retraining service has a UI where you can see like um, what's the status of my job. Like was it, you know, did it finish? Um, did it produce a model that was better than the previous model? I think I'm just still trying to wrap my head around the the event based model here. You know, as an example of a question that's coming to mind uh, in an event-based world, are you regenerating the features, you know, every time? And if you've got, you know, some complex feature that involves a lot of transformation or you have to backfill a ton of data, like what does that even mean in an event-based world where I think of like you have events and they go away? Uh, Is there some kind of store for all that that isn't Redshift or Presto? Um, well, whenever we say event, you know, we're publishing something to Kafka and then we're archiving it to S3. Okay. Uh, and then that persists, like, you know, as long as we want it to, um, in, in some cases, basically forever. Um, and so that is available. We do do end up doing um, a decent amount of backfilling of kind of like, you know, you define the transform features you want, but then... Uh, you need, you know, you need to run that back over all the data you'll need for your training set. That's something that we've actually done a lot of from the beginning, partly because of our applications. Like when you're looking at fraud, um, you know, the way you find out if you were right or not is that like in some time period, usually within 90 days, but sometimes longer than that, the cardholder decides um, whether they're going to dispute something as fraudulent or not. Mm-hmm. Um and that's compared to like, you know, if you're doing ads or trying to get clicks, like you kind of get the result right away. Right. Um, and we, you know, so I, I think we've always like been interested in kind of like being able to backfill so that is, you know, you can log things forward, but then it's like, you'll probably have to wait a little bit of time before you have enough of a data set that you can train on it. Cool. So we talked about the data uh, side of things. We talked about training and experiments. Uh, how about inference? Yeah, that's that's a really great question, and that's that's kind of like the first thing that we built infrastructure support for. Um, at first, a decent number of years ago, like I think even before things like TensorFlow were really popular, and so we have um, like our own Scala service that we use to do our production real time inference, um, and. You know, we started out, especially because we have like mostly transactional data. We don't have a lot of things like images, at least as our most critical applications at this point. Um, a lot of our early models and even still today, like most of our production models are kind of like tree-based models, like initially things like random forest and now things more like XGBoost. And so, you know, we've kind of like, um, we have the serialization for that built into our training workflows and um, we've optimized that to run pretty efficiently in our Scala inference service. And then we've built some kind of nice layers on top of that 
um, for things like model composition, kind of what we call meta models, where, you know, you can kind of like take your machine learning model and um, kind of like almost like within the model sort of compose something like add a threshold to it. Um, or like for radar, we train, you know, some array of like, in some cases, user specific models along with like maybe more of some global models. And so you can kind of incorporate in the framework of a model um, doing that dispatch where you're kind of like, if it matches these conditions, then score with these models. Otherwise, score with this model and like, here's how you combine it. Um, and then the way that interfaces with your application is that each application has uh, what we call a tag, and basically the tag points to the model identifier, which is kind of like immutable. And then whenever you have a new model or you're ready to ship, you just like update what does that tag point to. Um, and then, you know, pr in production, you're just saying like score the model for this tag. I think that's pretty similar to like, you know, if you read about Uber's Michelangelo and things like that, sometimes we're like, oh, we all came up with the same thing. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think that like a lot of people have kind of come up with some of these uh, these ways of doing things that just kind of make sense. Yeah, it also sounds a little bit like uh, some of what uh, Selden is trying to capture in the Kubernetes environment, um, uh, which I guess brings me to is the inference running in Kubernetes or is that a separate infrastructure? It's not right now, but I think that's mostly like a matter of time and prioritization. Mm -hmm. um, like the first thing we moved to Kubernetes was uh, the training piece because the workflow management piece was so powerful, or sorry, the resource management piece was so powerful, like being able to swap out CPU, GPU, high memory. We've moved some of our, the sort of real-time feature evaluation to Kubernetes, which has um, been really great and made it like a lot less toil to kind of deploy new feature versions. At some point, we will probably also move the inference service to Kubernetes. We just kind of haven't gotten there yet because it is still some work to do that. And is the uh, the inferences happening on AWS as well? And are you using kind of standard CPU instances or are you doing anything fancy there? Yeah, so um, we run on cloud for pretty much everything and um, definitely use a lot of AWS. For the real-time inference of the most sensitive like production use cases, um, we're definitely mostly using um, CPU and we've done a lot of optimization work. Um, so that has worked pretty well for us. Um, I think we do have some folks who've kind of experimented a little bit with like hourly or batch scoring. Um, using some other things. So I think that's something that we're definitely thinking about as we have more people productionizing um, kind of like more complex types of models where, you know, we might want something different. You mentioned a lot of optimization that you've done. Is that uh, on a model by model basis or are there uh, platform uh, things that you've done that help optimize across the various models that you're deploying uh, for inference? Yeah, definitely a lot of things at the platform level. Like I think the first models that we ever ever scored in our inference service um, were serialized with YAML, um, and they were like really huge, and uh, they caused a lot of garbage when we tried to load them. And so, like we did some work there for kind of tree-based models um, to be able to load things from disk to memory really quickly and like not producing much garbage. Um, so that that kind of thing are things that we did, especially kind of like in the earlier days. What are you using for querying the models? Are you doing REST or gRPC or uh, something altogether different? Yeah, we use REST right now. I think gRPC is like something that we're interested in, um, but we haven't done yet. Is all of your all of the inference done 
via um kind of via rest and like a kind of microservice style or do you also do uh more i guess embedded types of uh inference for like where you need have super low latency requirements does rest kind of meet the need across the application portfolio yeah, um, even for our most critical applications like Shield, things have worked pretty well. One other thing our orchestration team has done that's worked really well for us is um, migrating a lot of things to Envoy. Um, so we've seen some some things where like we didn't understand why there was some delay like in what we measured for how long things took versus like what it took to the user. That just kind of went away as we moved to Envoy. And what is Envoy? Envoy is like a service service networking mesh that was developed by Lyft um, and is kind of like an open source open source library, and so it handles a lot of things. It can handle a lot of things like service to service communication. The inference environment is it doing uh, absent of Kubernetes all the things that you'd expect Kubernetes to do in terms of like auto scaling and um, you know load balancing uh, across the different service instances or is that stuff all done um, statically? Um, we take care of the routing um, ourselves. And we also, at this point, have kind of like sharded our inference service. So not all models are stored on every host so that, you know, we don't need hosts with like infinite memory. And so that we take care of ourselves. Um, the scaling we is not fully automated at this point. We do we have kind of like quality of service, so we have like multiple kind of clusters of machines, and we tier a little bit by like you know how sensitive your application is and what you need from it, um, so that we can be a little bit more lax with people who are developing and want to test and not have that like potentially have any impact on more critical applications. Um, but we haven't done like totally automated scaling. That's something we kind of still look at a little bit ourselves. Uh, so if you were kind of just starting down this journey uh, without having done all the the things that, that you've done at Stripe, where do you think you would start? If you just, you know, you're, you're at an organization that's kind of increasingly invested in or investing in machine learning and, you know, needs to try to, you know, gain some efficiencies. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're just starting out, like, it's good to think about, like, what are your requirements, right? Um, and, you know, if you're just trying to iterate quickly, it's like, do the simplest thing possible, right? So, you know, if you can do things in batch, like, great, do things in batch. Um, I think a lot of, there are a lot of both open source libraries as well as managed solutions, um, like, on all the different cloud providers. So I think, you know, I don't know, you know, if you're only one person, then I think that those could make a lot of sense also for people starting out. Because I think one of the interesting things with machine learning applications is that um, it takes a little bit of work. Like usually there's sort of this threshold of like your modeling has to be good enough for this to be like a useful thing for you to do. Like for fraud detection, it's like if we can't catch any fraud with our models, then like, you know, we probably shouldn't have like a fraud detection product. Um, so I think it is useful to kind of have like a quick iteration cycle to find out like, is this a viable thing that you even want to pursue? And if you have an infrastructure team, they can kind of like help um, lower the bar for that. But I think there are other ways to do that, especially as, you know, there's been like this Cambrian explosion in the ecosystem of mm -hmm. different open source platforms as well as different managed solutions. Yeah. How do you, how do you think an organization knows when they should have an infrastructure team, uh, ML in particular? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I guess uh, in our case, I think, um, you know, the person who originally founded the machine learning infrastructure team um, 
had worked in this area before at Twitter and kind of had a sense of like, this is going to be a thing that we're really going to want to invest in given how important it is for our business. And also that if you don't kind of like dedicate some folks to it, it's easy for them to kind of get sucked up in other things. Like if you just have data infrastructure that's undifferentiated. So I think it's a really interesting question. There probably is this business piece, right? Of like, what are your ML applications? Like how critical are they to your business? And like how difficult are your infrastructure requirements for them as well? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies develop their ML infrastructure, like starting out with things like making the notebook experience really great because they want to support like a lot of data scientists who are doing a lot of analysis. And so that's like a little bit of a different arc from from the one that we've been on. And I think that's like actually a pretty business dependent thing. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about this really interesting uh, story and I've enjoyed learning about it. Cool. Um, thanks so much for chatting. Really enjoyed it. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.